Hey, CA Church. Welcome, thanks for joining us today. And if you've welcomed other people into your house today, thank you so much for being so hospitable. We are continuing our series this week. Last week, Pastor David gave us a message on the prophet Elijah. And today we're going to talk about his disciple, his successor, Elisha. Don't mix those two up. And I'll try not to as I speak to you today. Elisha was the new prophet to to take over as the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel. And now when you think of Israel, this is, it's not the unified nation that that came out of Egypt with Moses during this time of of the prophets. After the the death of King Solomon, sometime around 930 BC, there was a, a civil war splitting the kingdom into a northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. And there were groups of prophets that spoke to each of these kingdoms. Elijah and Elisha were prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. And like all prophets, their job, and it was a never-ending job, was to call people back to God, to be the voice of God saying, return, return to your God. And Elijah had done this in spectacular fashion. Uh, he, He went to battle with the prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven. He, he was taken up to heaven in a, in a chariot of fire while walking down the street with Elisha. And now Elisha is the next guy in line. So, uh, you know, a little bit of pressure there. But we find very quickly that Elisha had no problem filling the sandals of Elijah. But he knew he had to inherit something from outside himself. So in, in 2 Kings 2.9, Elisha asks to be granted a double inheritance of Elijah's Spirit. It was, a, it was a language of a son saying to his father, I want to inherit the wealth that you have. But he wasn't concerned with actual physical wealth. He was concerned with spiritual strength and power. He was basically saying, Elijah, whatever you had going on between you and God, I would like that and I, I want it doubled. He knew he could not do this job on his own. It's interesting that he asks for a double inheritance and scripture records exactly twice as many miracles by Elisha than performed by Elijah. Scripture records 14 miracles performed by Elijah and 28 by his successor, Elisha. In fact, next to Jesus, there are more miracles recorded in the life of Elisha than any other person in the Bible. The last of which actually happened after he had died, (laughs) when a corpse was thrown onto his tomb in a hurry and after coming in contact with Elisha's bones, the the man was resurrected. Was the job of every prophet was to point God's people back to himself, point them back to belief and authentic worship of Yahweh, to point them to a larger narrative and, and miracles were a massive part of that. That's why in the Gospel of John, the miracles of Jesus are called signs. They're meant to, to lift our heads and, and give us bearings in the cosmos because they remind us the world is, is off The world is not right. Creation has gone astray, but that there is a God who intervenes. And that's the job of every prophet in a way. But it didn't always play out in such a spectacular way as it did with Elijah and Elisha. One of my favorite stories where this plays out in the life of Elisha is in 2 Kings chapter 6. And if you have a Bible with you, you can grab your Bible. If you're on a device, um, you can grab it and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. And let's stand out of respect for God's word. And just before we read that together, you need to know that at the time of Elisha, a, a group of people called the Arameans had been a nuisance to the people of Israel, attacking and terrorizing the people so that Israel was always looking over her shoulder, wondering when the next attack would come. 
and the king of Aram, where the Arameans were, where modern, modern Syria is today, he was tenacious, always plotting and trying to surprise the king of Israel with an attack. So if you're standing, let's read now from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 20. It says, when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, do not go near that place for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this, as you can imagine. He called his officers together and demanded, which one of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? They said, it's not us, my lord the king. One of the officers replied, Elisha the prophet in Israel tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. Now, you might see a hole in his plan. If the prophet always knows where you're planning to attack, sneaking up on him probably is not going to be easy. And it says this, as the report came back, Elisha is in Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning, he went outside and there were troops, horses and chariots everywhere. So he woke Elisha up. He said, oh, sir, what, what are we going to do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Now, remember the last time Elisha saw a chariot, when his predecessor was caught up into heaven by a fiery chariot of God. So he knows that there's something bigger going on. He says in verse 16, don't be afraid. There are more on our side than there are on theirs. And I imagine the servant looking around thinking, is this really the guy I want to be following around in the desert? This was not on the pamphlet that we're going to be running into these kinds of problems. It says, and then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And as the Aramean army advanced towards him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And then Elisha went out and told them, you've come, to the wrong, you've come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. And you need to know Samaria is, is a, an Israelite city. It's the center of the enemy. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. I, I love this story because we, we are in constant need of having our spiritual eyes open. We are in constant need of getting our, our bearings in, in the cosmos. So I want to talk today about a sustaining faith that comes from having our, our, our spiritual eyes open. And I want to use the word sustain or sustaining because sustain kind of has that feeling of, of just getting by day by day. And I think for most of us, if we're honest, we feel that, that the faith we need right now is, is just to come to God and ask for enough for today. We aren't, and we don't even have the ability right now to know what next week's gonna look like in so many ways. 
And we aren't superheroes, God. Just give us, give us a glimpse of you so we can be sustained right now. So that we can daily come to, for, the, for the long haul and be sustained, find our bearings and continue on. And in this story today, we see that. We see first that a sustaining faith, it sees more. In verse 16, it says, there, there's, there are more on our side than there, there, than there are on theirs. This is not the first time that the servant of the prophet had heard that God was with them, but it may be the first time he realized that it was not a metaphor. So I think you and I, we need a constant reminder that our story is bigger than our circumstance. That our life is not a snapshot, it's not a still picture, it's part of an ongoing larger story. And that's why, you know, when we gather together, when we, when we gather together even like this, we, we celebrate through worship. When we gather together as the church, we, we do so with communion, through which we're, we're told to remember and remind ourselves that Christ conquered death and is coming again. We worship through psalms and songs and scripture that, that draw our eyes off the immediate circumstance to God's sufficiency, his strength, and his sovereignty. And when we, we neglect that, when we neglect communing with God through scripture and prayer, neglect communing with his people, we'll take on the smaller story that's offered us every day. The smaller story that's offered us on our newsfeed. We'll find ourselves forgetting, find ourselves like Elisha's servant, panicking by what's on the horizon. Elisha's faith continually pointed to a bigger story. And you get the sense throughout this story that, that everyone seems to be panicking. The king of Aram is, is mad and he's anxious and he's accusing his soldiers of, of talking behind his back and of giving away his plans. The king of Israel is pan, panicking. He has, he has the enemy's army and he starts yelling like a kid to, to Isaiah or to Elisha. Should, should, I, should I kill him? Should I kill him? Asking the prophet for military advice. The servant is freaking out. The only one who's calm the, is, is the prophet of God. He doesn't even need to be in Dothan. If you think about it, I'm sure he knew that the king was coming, but he has a strong confidence in a God who is closer than you think. Everyone seems to be lost. Elisha seems to have his bearings straight. Because also, and that's the second point I want to give this morning, is that a sustaining faith produces and nourish, nurtures peace. Produces and nurtures peace. It fuels peace in us and through us. It fuels peace in us. It fuels peace in us because there's, there's never a time we're fully alone or, or cornered without hope. See, in verse 17, it says, Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opens the young man's eyes, and when he looks up, he sees the hillside around Elijah was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Notice this is important. The prayer that Elisha prays is not, God, please show up. The prayer was not even, God, give us strength. The prayer was, open his eyes. It wasn't, God, you gotta, you gotta alter reality right now. It was, give him knowledge of your presence so that he's able to say, like I'm saying, I don't need to be afraid. That, uh, that's an understanding of a God who is, who is here, has the ability to sustain. So sustaining faith fuels peace in us, but it also produces and nurtures peace through us as well. See, the king of Israel in this story is, is living in fear. He sees here only an opportunity to wipe out the enemy. But Elisha sees something different. We see this in verses 21 to 23. I, I alluded to it earlier, but, but here we read it. In verse 21, when the king of Israel saw them in Samaria, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And Elisha says in verse 22, Of course not. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. 
And so the king made a great feast for them, and then he sent them home to their master. And after that, the Aramean uh, raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. See, there's a, there's a peace that comes from knowing that the interactions between you and me and, and our, our thought enemies are, are not the big story. See, fear and lashing out, that, that comes from not feeling secure. You, you do not get a, a sense from Elisha that, that now that we've got them, let, we better take care of them. We better destroy them. You, you get a sense that as, as one backed by the fiery army of God, there's no real need for panic or even retaliation, that God probably has that covered. What Elisha sees here is an opportunity to display mercy in the face of their enemy. You can see that the king is thinking, hey, we get to kill them now, right? That's what nations do, right? You, you capture the enemy and you, you punish them when you get the chance. Imagine the conversations back in Aram, around the, the tables of these, these, these men from the army heading back home. And imagine the stories that they were telling their families when they were turned home safely. So you're, you're back, you must have won. Uh, no, not exactly. Oh, so, so you had to escape? Well, no, not, not exactly. Well, what happened? Well, they had an army of fire, <laughs> which we only saw for like a few seconds because then, um, then we went blind, and then they had us surrounded, and then um, when we thought we were gonna die, they, they fed us uh, really good food and gave us really good drink, and then they, they thanked us for coming, and then they sent us home. <laughs> Imagine that kind of story being spread around the nations of Israel. See, today in an age of, of shame, which we live in today, where individuals play judge, jury, and now social executioner from behind their phones, where we live in a shame culture that says, if you mess up, you will publicly pay the consequences. And there's no room for forgiveness. There is, there is a peace produced in us when we know that our greatest treasure and our greatest allegiance cannot be touched. And that we are not alone, that we are backed by God. There's a, there's a peace when we know that we have our bearings in the cosmos and we know and live as in the knowledge that, that we are securely located right next to God. And the last point I want to make today is that for you and I, on, on this side of the beautiful story, not only of, of Elisha and Elijah, but on this side of the story of, of Jesus, who like Elisha, ripped off the, the top of the cosmos to reveal the love and presence of God, sustaining faith is built on the resurrection of Christ. That's where our sustaining faith is built. The miracle of miracles. The ultimate display of God's presence and power. The great showing up of God to the battle and the war. Which is why it has always been the foundation of our faith. It's not an option. If you do not buy the truth of the resurrection, you're not a Christian. It's not an option. It is the basis of the Christian faith. The proclamation of the Christian faith is that I can face tomorrow because he lives. I can face today because he lives. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and 14, for if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. That's been the story since the beginning of Christianity. Since the beginning, it's been foundational. It's been the strengthening truth of our faith, the truth that, of this historical fact that has sustained believers throughout centuries. 
The trouble we face, whether it's personal or pandemic, is the resurrection of Christ. That is the power to move us forward. It is the ultimate answer to Elisha's prayer that our eyes be opened so that we can see God behind us. I've already mentioned that through the Gospel of John, the miracles of Jesus are referred to as signs to help us get our bearings, to give us directions. And the greatest miracle of Christ being his resurrection is meant to give us our bearings here and now for every Christian for all of eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, the Apostle Paul writes to this this small church words of encouragement that are similar to the words of Elisha in a way. And in doing so, he points to the resurrection of Jesus as the strengthening factor for all who love God, but who are in need of strength in difficult times. He says this in Ephesians 1 verse 16, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. This is how we get our bearings. It's, it's always been that way. Without this truth at the center of our lives, we get lost, especially now. Have you, ever, have you ever had to use Google Maps right when your data is running out on your phone or it already has run out? It's, it's a cause for panic, man. I mean, you, you just get that blue dot, a blue dot with no streets, no buildings, no, no shadings of parks, just you alone in the world, a lonely lost blue dot. Maybe, maybe there's a red point somewhere for the destination you're getting to, but with no roads on the map, you have no clue, you have no tools how to get there. That is a description of life, an illustration of life without a larger story, without signposts, without Jesus. Jesus shows us where we are. In the Gospel of John, chapter, chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I've come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. He says again in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I'm the path, I'm the truth and the life. I'm how you get your bearings. No one comes to the Father except through me. Imagine if we understood an empty Google map to be reality, or we lived as if it was. Imagine if looking at what we saw in front of us on a map on our phone, if it had ultimate sway on how we saw our lives. A blue dot, alone in the cosmos, lost. See, the story of Elisha, the fact of the resurrection, reminds us that even when the buildings and the roads do not show up because of our bad connection, we may need to stop staring at what we have perceived as our reality, settling for it as reality, long enough to look up and take in a larger story, to gain a wisdom that goes beyond what we perceive or what we might daily experience. So that as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, so that our hearts will be flooded with light, like the fiery chariot, so that we can understand the confident hope he has given us, that we will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. I, I don't know where today finds you. I know that for my family, this has been a time of, of loss. It's been a, a time of, 
of seeing dark clouds on the horizon, armies approaching. And if we try to get our bearings based on those experiences and not live a life reminding ourselves of the God who is closer than we can imagine, we will find ourselves without a story to navigate with. We will find ourselves in fear and uncertainty, lashing out at each other. We'll find ourselves forgetting that in, in light of the resurrection, no death or disease, no threat has the final say. Even every dark cloud will one day dissolve. Every army will one day de be dispersed. That doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean we'll never face fear, but it means that fear should not take up residence in our hearts. It can only visit. We're reminded again and again throughout scripture that suffering is an actual part of the state of creation and that the people of God as a part of that creation will experience a part in that suffering. And Jesus promises more so that, that when we're identified with him, that we'll suffer more. And so in light of the fact that we know creation is bound for something better, that's the promise of the resurrection, verified by the resurrection, in light of the fact that we believe that God is sovereign and all-powerful, it is logical, acceptable, and commendable to bring our pain and our fears to him. I love Psalm 46 because it, it captures the concerns of someone who follows and loves God, but at the same time sees the brokenness and uncertainty of circumstances and says, God, give us some, some security even in the middle of this trouble. In the middle of COVID-19, when, when everything seems to be pushed a little bit deeper down, give us strength. The psalm describes our need for strength and solid ground when it feels like everything we used to stand on is crumbling. It, it talks about fresh water getting to us even when we feel closed off and trapped. And it invites us to remember that God is closer than we think. That through personal and pandemic suffering and fear, God is with us. And it's not a metaphor. I want to invite you now to, to bow your heads wherever you are and pray the words of this psalm with me, or at least using Psalm 46 as kind of a springboard to pray through. So let's pray. God, I pray that you would be our refuge and our strength. We thank you that you are always ready to help us in times of trouble, so that we don't need to, to live in fear when it feels like the earth is shaking, when it, when it seems like mountains are crumbling into the sea. Father, the, the oceans can roar and they can foam and we do not need to be afraid because like a river brings fresh water, God, you can bring us fresh water. God, we pray that you would dwell amongst us, that we would realize it's not simply a metaphor to say that God is near, that you are with us. And God, as the, as the world may bow to fear and chaos at this time, we pray that your voice would speak to us words of peace, words of support and comfort, words of sovereignty, so that even in the middle of this, while the world is crying uh, chaos, chaos, we could be still and know that you are God. God, we thank you that you will one day bring everything to rights. You are the Lord of heaven's army and you are among us. You are our rock and our fortress even now, and we pray this in Jesus' name, who has purchased a right to come before you in prayer today through his glorious death and resurrection. Amen.